the smoking section with Scout Latiri and Suni Khalid coming down in three, two, one, mark. All right, here we are, installment number two of the smoking section. What are we smoking today? Suni Khalid with Scott Latiri. You notice how I said your name first this time? That'd be a nice, that's a nice thing. But that's not how it's going to be on the podcast. So just uh, because, you know, I'm doing the producing. Producing. I can't talk, but I'm doing the producing. Is this because I'm black? Yeah, it's all because you're black. What are we smoking today? We're uh, going Dominican today. Romeo and Julieta Revin, 1875 cigar. It's a nice cigar. It's not a Padron, and it's not a Monte Cristo. But it's uh, sufficient for our purposes. Yeah, I, I bought them. That's why I went to this uh, cigar shop on uh, Columbus Street in North Beach, and they didn't have a Monte Cristo and they didn't have the Padrones, but they had the Romeo and Julieta. I thought maybe a little change of pace. It's a full-bodied cigar. I can't. I can't complain. It's a long cigar too. It's it's called a Hemingway. I guess because uh, it uh, assists storytelling, and that's what we do on this show, this podcast. It's a Hemingway, not a Henway. Either way. I had a Henway for dinner the other night. <laughs> you got me beat on that. I had a Henway for dinner the other night. How'd it go? No, you're supposed to ask me what's a Henway. What's a Henway? Oh, about six pounds. <laughs> yeah, this is the kind of bad humor that uh, the audience will be subjected to for the duration. Anyway, thanks for tuning in. Not tuning in. It's not a tune-in. It's a podcast. Two old radio guys telling stories about their journalistic endeavors, smoking cigars. Uh, hold the hold the podcast uh, vehicle while I spark it up, will you please? And uh, let's talk. Okay, you got a couple of retractions you want to make from not our podcast? Once corrections. Uh, the first story about Liberia. Uh, I uh, misidentified Frank Tolbert, the vice president. He was tied to the stakes for execution and passed out before he could be uh, dispatched. Uh, The person who was not killed in the first volley from the firing squad was Foreign Minister Cecil Dennis. I had seen Cecil in D.C. about two or three weeks before he was uh, captured, taken to the stocks, and executed. And uh, the uh, story about the coup in Kenya, the soldier that I thought was going to dispatch me did not have an AK-47 with a wooden stock. It was an Uzi, an Israeli-made Uzi machine gun with a wooden stock. Wow. So tell the difference for our our listeners uh, between an Uzi and an AK-47. They're both automatic weapons, right? Yes. They're both lethal. One is made by the Israelis, uh, very effective, uh, but the AK-47 is sort of like every man's weapon, and that's usually in countries that that were supported by the Soviet Union. Uh, the uh, Mozambican flag has an AK-47 on it. It's so uh, ubiquitous. weighs about nine pounds. Uh, but the Kenyan army has never received arms from the Soviet Union, and uh, they use Enfield rifles or uh, some have some have Uzis, but uh, they use American weapons. I'm glad we straightened that out. So what we're going to talk about today is we're going to talk about we're going to go back in time. We're going to get in the uh, in the time capsule. And uh, reminisce a little bit about what prompted us, what lured us, what uh, compelled us to become journalists. Oh, that's sort of sort of heavy. I think probably uh, my mother, as I told you before, my mother, Edith J. Lee, who died five months ago, was a house doctor in the city of Detroit. And she would go to the worst neighborhoods 
in Detroit, and she put all six of us in a station wagon. We have no business being in an area like this. Well, look at it this way, honey. This is a part of America we never get to see. Roll them up. She'd introduce us to folks. Uh, we'd meet families. We'd eat over there, and I did not realize until about 30 years later, she took us into neighborhoods that were on the cusp of integration, white middle-class neighborhoods that were resisting uh, integration from black folks. And I was reading a book in Detroit. I was reading a book by Tom Chagru about this. And I'm reading this book, <coughs> and I'm looking at the timeline, and I remember some of these neighbors said, Mom, why did you take us into these neighborhoods? She said they weren't going to fool with a doctor, and she didn't think they would harass a black doctor with kids in the station wagon. It made sense. You know, she appealed to the, the softer side of a bigot's heart. But anyway, um, late what, what 60s. Years are we talking about? We're talking in the 60s and uh, early 70s. And in the early 70s, uh, I remember this white guy came in with mom, bald head, thick glasses, smoking cigars. His name was Don Ball, and he was a local reporter with the Detroit News. And he used to write, he used to go along with mom on her house calls and write about the city. And I'd see Don Ball with his portable typewriter in our dining room with that cigar, which my mom hated, but she allowed him to smoke his cigar. And I used to watch Don Ball write his stories. And it just fascinated me how he was able to take an event and tell a story with it. And uh, after that, I got into uh, my junior high school newspaper and went on to high school. And uh, I was with the Black Awareness Study Club. We had our own newspaper called the Daraja, which means a bridge in Kiswahili. And our newspaper, which we gave away free, was more popular than the school newspaper, which I also wrote for. Uh, but I think probably seeing Don Ball, and uh, I was a student leader. Highland Park High School, I was one of the student leaders for the 1975 student walkout. We were protesting uh, budget cuts uh, and reassignment of a lot of teachers. In fact, they had reassigned away our the, the teacher who was putting our, our school yearbook together. We wouldn't have had a yearbook, so we got her back, and we had a yearbook. Uh, but there was a reporter with the Detroit News named Lou Malechko, and I watched how he went about his trade when he was interviewing me left a big impression but I think the biggest single event was uh, 1974 I think I was a, either a sophomore or junior and Sam Yet, who was the first black correspondent for Newsweek he was teaching at Howard University he came to speak to the auditorium Highland Park High School and Highland Park Community College shared a building so Sam Yet spoke and he had a book called The Choice and I was absolutely spellbound when I saw him speak, went up on stage later and I decided I'm going to go to Howard University and I'm going to take journalism. And it was the great Sam Yet. That was the reason I got into journalism. And the rest is history. What was the choice? What, what, what was that book about and what was the choice? It was the issue of black survival. This was, it was written in 1969. This was uh, in the aftermath of the uh, riots that had swept the country from the, the early 60s, mid-60s on. And of course, it has special meaning for me in Detroit because the 67 riots were the bloodiest in the nation. In a hundred places, Detroit is afire. 100 square blocks are now under siege. And as you walk through the area, people shout from their homes, watch out for the snipers. 
uh, and my mother took us in her station wagon out during the riots, so we got to see everything. And then there was the 68 riots uh, after Dr. King was assassinated. Somewhere I read of the freedom of speech. Somewhere I read of the freedom of press. Somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest far right. So the country was in in turmoil. So Sam Yet basically wrote that uh, there was an issue of survival, whether uh, African Americans or Negroes or blacks or whatever we were called at that point were going to be kept around. I think my uh, early endeavor and thoughts about journalism weren't uh, as noble. I think they (laughs) perhaps uh, was a little bit more about uh, just kind of falling into it. Although as I look back, I think that uh, it wasn't preordained, but there was something maybe in my subconscious that uh, that led me to journalism and particularly to radio. We're both radio journalists. Uh, SUNY, if uh, you're not familiar, has uh, worked for NPR and has covered some amazing stories in, in Africa and the Mideast. And uh, we worked together at KGO Radio here in San Francisco, which was a, a powerhouse of a radio station for 30 years. It's been decimated by the corporate robber barons. But anyway, as a young boy... Growing up in a lower middle-class neighborhood in suburban Los Angeles, uh, a town by the name of Van Nuys, which was the uh, porn capital of the world. You ever it saw was. Th- It was. I don't think it is anymore. <laughs> These movies we make, they can be better. I'm going to keep trying if you guys keep trying. Let's keep rocking and rolling, man. I think that uh, that has been uh, parsed out uh, everywhere on the globe because everybody has a phone nowadays, right? With a video camera. Yeah, let me look through your phone. Let me look through your phone. Oh, no. You don't want to. You don't want to do that. <laughs> so anyway, growing up in this town called Van Nuys, where uh, everybody pretty much was a Republican except me and my family, all working class folks who were voting against their own self interests. Van um, Nuys, that's Dutch. How many of y'all were Dutch there? <laughs> I mean, your Not name, too many Dutch. I mean, your name is Scott, and your mother's Mexican, and your father's Italian. I never understood that, man. Well, you know, they wanted uh, they wanted me to... Uh, assimilated? Assimilated, you know. It didn't work. No. <laughs> they say it's what a about, melting pot, right? What about Ros- more of a salad. What about Rosario or Dante Letteri? That Rosario? Dante. That's yeah, Rosario. like a female, isn't it? Rosario Dawson? Rosario, Rosario, whatever. I don't know. It's not my language, okay? Dante. Give me a break. Yeah, no, Dante. They were going to name me Nick, or they were going to name me... <laughs> I wanted to be named Mario after the fact. But Nick? Yeah, Nick. Nick, like Nicholas. I don't know. My dad liked that name. We're, we're, Adam. Were, were, were drugs used a lot in, in your household before you... <laughs> was there a lot of drinking? Just just tell me, what was going on there? There was a lot of passion. My mother, Mexican, she was out of her mind. My father, Italian, he was jealous. He hit some guy in a bar because she was, he was looking at my mother. What are you looking at? Boom. I could see why. I saw the picture of your mother. I would have to punch some... I'd have to punch some dudes out, man. I'm sorry. I don't hold it against Al. My dad... Art. Art. That was my uncle, Al. Atilio. My dad uh, tells a story about how um, one day um, he used to work at the mis- missile base in Van Nuys, and he would hop the fence to come over and visit my mom. And uh, he was taking a nap in the middle of the day one day, and uh, and all of a sudden there's this uh, crazy Mexican lady pounding on his chest and smack- smacking him in the head, jumped on top of him in bed, screaming at him, You still love her! You still love her! And he's like, What the hell are you talking about? Well, she'd found some old letters in the trunk of their car, 
from one of my dad's ex-girlfriends, and she just went ballistic. That was, that was my mom. And he was working at a missile factory. She went ballistic. Okay, yeah, makes sense. <laughs> All right, well, go ahead, man. Tell about how you got... What was your inspiration for getting involved in journalism? We both listened to the radio. This was before our color TVs and everything. We used to listen to ball games, all kinds of stuff. I don't know how old, how old you are, but there were color TVs when I was growing up. We didn't have one, but the neighbors did. Uh, we were colored, and we had black and white televisions. Taking <laughs> mm, a drag on this Romeo and Juliet, it's pretty, pretty darn smooth. It's not as full body as the other ones, but it's nice. Yeah, I mean, it's a nice before-dinner cigar. It's nice. I like it. Anyway, mm, take one more draw. Ooh. So yeah. So um. It's burning well. Ash is a nice color. Growing up in Van Nuys, California, about three blocks away, there was uh, the courthouse, the police station, and the library. Now my mother would send me off when I was seven, eight years old to go to the library, and instead of going there, I would go into the courthouse because it, it seemed just a little bit more interesting to me than than a bunch of books. I did read. I read at home, and I listened to the radio. But when I was out and about in the world... You were looking through trans- court transcripts at seven years old. <laughs> Not exactly. I would go into the courtrooms, sit down, seven, eight years old, and just watch the trials. I thought it was fascinating, the criminal justice system. I kind of got to know the criminal justice system... Somewhat later. ...pretty well as, as, a, as a pre-teenager. And just... Uh, get delinquent? All- <laughs> delinquent, is that the word you're looking for? <laughs> That's on another episode, a two-hour, a special two-hour episode of The Smoking <laughs> We won't go there yet. We won't go there yet. So I would sit and watch these, these trials. And, you know, they, were, they, were, they ran the gamut from, uh, you know, civil trials to divorce trials to uh, murder trials. And I just became uh, incredibly fascinated by the whole thing. In fact, when I was 16 years old, I was a, uh, a witness in the murder trial because... Uh, you saw somebody get popped? Not exactly. I was working at a uh, at a at a restaurant, and a coworker's roommate was supposed to pick him up, and uh, he didn't come to pick him up. And hours went by at the restaurant, and me and my friend were like, "Oh, your your roommate's not coming to pick you up, but we'll give you a ride home." He's like, "Yeah, that'd be nice. Thank you." So we took him home, and as soon as he got home, walked in the door, found two dead bodies on the floor. I guess he didn't pick him up. <laughs> no. What had happened was his roommate had come home. He was a formerly incarcerated individual who had a long rap sheet. But I met the man a few times. Ex-con. He was a nice guy, to me anyway. He, he, he went home. Did he used to give you candy? <laughs> come here, little boy. I got some candy for you. <laughs> Puppies? Did he have puppies? Okay. So he went home, and he found his lover with another man, and set him off. Went in his room, got his thirty-eight special, went up to both of them, executed them right there, and then took a powder. He fled. So we had to testify what we saw. What so happened? He, we he liquidated them. Yeah, he liquidated. How resourceful. <laughs> It's uh, Wizard of Oz. Little Chianti. <laughs> mm. So uh, we had to uh, testify, you know, kind of as uh, peripheral 
uh, witnesses because we didn't really see anything, but we we were kind of our friend's alibi who found the bodies. And uh, I remembered every detail to the T, which impressed the police. The police were, uh, you know, actually asking me all these questions, and I remembered every de- what time it was, the, the cul-de-sac, the address, how many houses were in that little area, uh, what the tattoo, because I'd met the guy a couple of times, what his tattoos were on his body. Uh, and I had like this incredible memory back then. Was that then. The inspiration for some of your body art as well? That was before I started smoking a lot of pot. And it's <laughs> the long-term memory. The long-term memory is good. It's the short-term memory that's not so good. My name is. My name is. My name is. <laughs> I'm Slim Shady. Yes, I'm the real Shady. And all you other Shadies are just imitating. So won't the real Slim Shady please stand up? Please stand up. My name is. My name is. I became fascinated by the criminal justice system, and I read, I read a lot of, you know, the newspapers and uh, magazines and stuff, and um, I didn't really know what I was going to do with myself, because I was just kind of, you know, playing football and playing baseball and just having hockey. fun. No, I didn't start playing street hockey till I was about 16, but, you know, growing up in L.A. back then, there was, you know, you had to be rich to play ice hockey, so we played street hockey. I started working for the school newspaper in grammar school. I actually uh, drew a picture of a little monster... Uh, but with a smiley face, and I can't remember the exact details of it because, like I said, my memory's shot. But uh, it got huge accolades. People loved it. Everywhere I walked on campus, they're like, "Hey, that was a great picture." So I'm like, "Hey, maybe uh, you know, maybe I'll work for the newspaper." So I started working for the school newspaper in high school and uh, in What's college. The name of school newspaper, the Bassett Hound. That was the. Uh, the school newspaper for the uh, for the uh, for the grammar school because the name of the grammar school was Bassett Street Elementary School. A dog of a paper. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Bassett Hounds. Bassett Hound. It's singular. Okay. What about like the Hush Puppies? They were the, the rival school. <laughs> <laughs> the Hounds of the Baskervilles. The Hounds of the Bassettvilles. Anyway, in high school, I started uh, I started working uh, on the school newspaper, and I was having fun with that. But I still didn't know what I was going to do. I started listening to the radio when I was a young man, young boy actually, because it was kind of a refuge from my uh, from my childhood, which wasn't which there were you know there were some great aspects of it, but there were other aspects that weren't so good. You know, the child abuse. <laughs> there was that, but I was also enraptured by Vin Scully who is probably, in my mind, the greatest sports broadcaster of all time. And I grew up in Detroit, so I had Ernie Harwell. So, you know, flip a coin, which one was greater? No, it's just hands down, it was Vinny. Oh, Ernie no, Harwell. No, Ernie Harwell was more of a uh, working class kind of guy, right? I mean, Vin Scully was like the Shakespeare. I mean, I remember one time... I come from a, where, a, a town where the middle class was born. There's no, nothing I, more bl- middle no, class than I Detroit. I know. There's nothing wrong with the middle class, and I like that. But there was just something about Vinny that took you to this whole other world, right? He was from Brooklyn. From Brooklyn, exactly. A lot of great writers are from Brooklyn. Bret Such Hart. As? Bret Hart. And? And, uh, and my favorite poet of all time. Who? See, we got that beat. I told you. Walt Whitman. Listen, we had Motown, and of course, God is from Detroit. Which God is that? There's only one God. Elijah Muhammad met God walking down the street in Detroit in 1932, Nation of Islam. He met God. 
I thought, no, didn't no. Jesus uh, walk God, through the deserts of no, Utah? I mean, no, no. all that religious stuff, it's no, all the same crap, right? No, I mean, no, Jesus, no, God, no. I mean, really? God was a man that Elijah Muhammad met in 1932 in Detroit. As far as I'm concerned, the argument, the debate is over. God is from Detroit. That beats anything you got. It doesn't matter. Else. Vince Scully was the best broadcaster of all time when it comes to sports. In a year that has been so improbable, the impossible has happened. I remember one time he was, I was listening to the radio and he was talking about uh, this kid that had come up for the St. Louis uh, Cardinals. And uh, he says, the only way I can describe this guy is there's a, there's a popular song out right now. And the description is meaner than a junkyard dog. He was talking about Al Rabowski. Better than Actually, he was meaner than Jared. <laughs> Perfect, right? Yeah, Perfect. he was. Anyway, I fell Mad in love with radio. Hungarian. I fell in love the Mad Hungarian. I fell in love with radio, and I ended up in radio. Many, many years later, small town, Santa Barbara was my first radio job. But it was not only... So you were patrolling the mean streets of Santa Barbara, California. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, that's a, talk about a crucible of fire. You know what? It's the have and have nots, brother. I was making minimum wage. There was no were rent control. Not. There was Over a have. I was a have not, all right. <laughs> making minimum wage, covering the Ronald Reagan Western White House, Leslie Stahl and Sam Donaldson, and all those other uh, big shot uh, White House correspondents. But there were two books, two seminal books that really turned me on to journalism. Which were they? Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. By Hunter Thompson. Hunter S. Thompson, who's, uh, who's gonzo journalism. He really revolutionized the whole journalism profession by putting himself in the middle of the story and not making himself the story. We had two bags of grass, 75 pellets of mescaline, five sheets of high-powered blotter acid, a salt shaker half full of cocaine, a whole galaxy of multicolored uppers, downers, screamers, laughers, also a quarter tequila, quarter rum, case of beer, Pine of raw ether, two dozen animals. I quoted him in the piece I did on the Raiders' goodbye that I wrote for the Undefeated three years ago, mm. when he described the Raider fans of which he was one. And the other book was All the President's Men, because I was, uh, I was, you know, of I was, course. I was a teenager when that was going down, and uh, reading that book just captured my imagination, wanted me to do the, do that kind of work, which, uh, which I perceived as God's work, God being from Detroit. What if you were given a chance to meet and speak with God? Let's go for a ride. Lived in the North End, not far from where I grew up. So what was your first journalism job? First journalism job was with uh, the Hilltop, Howard University. Uh, when I was a freshman, walked in, got a job there, uh, did a couple of music reviews, didn't do anything else, because I left Howard after first semester, went to Michigan, for a year, and then I came back to Howard. I talked to Professor Yet again, and he convinced me to come back to Howard, and then I started writing for the Hilltop. Uh, I did several things, but the great thing about Howard, because we're in Washington, D.C., because we have the largest percentage of foreign students of any university in the United States, we had an international news section, and the editor of the international news section was a guy named Moses Sam Pinkston. And he was succeeded by Sajo Kamara, who was from the Gambia, and he hired me. So I started going to White House opening ceremonies. 
I have my State Department press press in 1979. And I covered, for example, uh, the signing of the Camp David Peace Treaty between Begin, Carter, and Anwar Sadat in March 1979. And also uh, the... Um, Egypt and Israel. Egypt and Israel. Still in peace. And uh, then there was the um, Deng Xiaoping's visit to the White House with Jimmy Carter. I was there. I got to see it. I covered it. And uh, started going, started covering the diplomatic community, and uh, it was great because I was studying international, I was studying international relations when I was at Howard. I was meeting all these students, so it was great. Was it great? It was great. Yeah, I guess my first real journalism job was um, well. Let's talk about college. I went to Cal State Northridge, which uh, was a commuter school in Los Angeles, in the San Fernando Valley, not a not far from not a stone's throw from Van Nuys, the uh, porn capital of the world. Corn or porn? <laughs> I am there, cornholio. I need TP for my bunghole. I need TP for my bunghole. Are you threatening me? But. Uh, yeah, in college, we were an NPR affiliate, so I got to cover all sorts of great shit. I got to cover uh, the Hillside Strangler. I mean, it, I actually didn't uh, go to the trial, but I was covering the actual murders and going to the murder scenes and, uh, you know, with all the other cops. And it was very heady because it was, um, you know, as a young man, uh, I, I developed and, and nurtured this ability to distance myself from anything that was a little bit too traumatic. So I would go, and I was excited about... Uh, going to murder scenes and fire scenes and stuff. I mean, now, I mean, it's, it's PTSD, as any reporter has been in the field for over a few years, they can tell you it really comes back to haunt you. And maybe we'll devote a whole podcast to that, because there's a great film that came out a few years ago called um, Breaking News, Breaking Down, about how, yeah, reporters and journalists suffer from PTSD having to cover all this stuff, stuff and having to deny it. It used to be in the old days, people would just drink themselves to death. But now, uh, you know, we have um, mental... we spitting a little dirt on you. You'll be fine. Right, yeah, yeah, exactly. Toughen up, kid. I covered the Hillside Strangler. I covered uh, the John DeLorean trial, which was pretty fun. I also covered city council and, uh, you know, and I did, uh, I did all sorts of... Um, that was during Tom Bradley's uh, reign? That was Tom Bradley. I interviewed Tom Bradley, the first African-American uh, mayor of a major city, if I believe oh. correctly. No, that uh, was Los Detroit. Angeles. Of Los no. Angeles. Yeah. No, actually, Cleveland, and that was uh, Stokes. Oh. When was that? Carl Stokes. Late 60s. Yeah. Detroit didn't get its first black mayor until 73. All right. And uh, I don't think that San Francisco, we're, we're in San Francisco, by the way. You hear the cable cars go by. We're sitting on my porch in uh, Russian Hill. But San Francisco didn't get its first black mayor until recently. London Breed. Is that? Oh, no. Willie Brown. First female black Mayor, get my facts straight. We're gonna have to do a retraction or a correction on the next uh, on the next podcast, perhaps. I, I, people, I try to work with them. I really do. What's your email? SunniCollid at yahoo dot com. You better spell that for the people. S u n n i k h a l i d at yahoo dot com. So if you have any complaints, or if you want to make any corrections, or if you want us to make any retractions, or if you're just offended by what we have to say, or you hate cigars. Mail him. I'm or not... Scott Letiri. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck spelling that. So, yeah. So, I, I also, uh, I was there t- 
the radio station. I got involved at the at the radio station at Cal State Northridge. I was a reporter for the local edition of All Things Considered. I was also an anchor for um, for a magazine show called uh, I think it was KCSN Magazine, where we did all sorts of fun stuff. I interviewed, you know, uh, that was a pretty that was a pretty catchy name. <laughs> yeah, well. Yeah, just, just the facts, ma'am. Just the facts, ma'am. You did a nice Jack Webb there. I didn't get into radio. This is the city. I didn't get into radio. I had a girlfriend. You had a uh, girlfriend once? Yeah, actually. My girlfriend, my junior year at Howard, was uh, Carmelita Hill. Carmelita Hill Smith. She's uh, We're still friends to, to this day, 40 years later. But she was the manager, the general manager of the student um, small campus only um, radio station so she asked me to do sports and I did sports and uh, then I did some stuff for uh, WHUR when I went over to Africa for the first time but it wasn't until 1989 I was uh, a reporter at the Baltimore Sun and uh, I wanted to go over and cover the elections in Namibia that I've been you know studying and reporting on since the 70s and uh, went to have a meeting with the foreign editor, and I'd come up with a four-page proposal, stories, costs, everything. He said, this is great, declared a company of the property, and said he wasn't going to send me, he was going to give it to their Johannesburg bureau chief. Wow. So I could either get mad or get even. So I decided to get even. I got a month's salary, paid beforehand, went over sent myself to Wait, who sent you the, who gave I you went to, I went to the Village Voice oh. and did stuff with the Village Voice and a couple other newspapers but while I was there in Namibia covering the elections freelancing on my own dime uh, I met an old friend of mine named John Madison John Madison was a white Jewish South African uh, is he related to Dolly? Mattison M-A-T-T I-S-O-N and uh, John and I ran into each other. Did you hurt him when you ran into him? No, John was uh, pretty considerable. He's an author now. He just had his, his second book on South Africa. And so John and I ran into each other. So we went to northern Namibia during the elections. An African-American Muslim driving the same car with a South African Jew. So we were very unlikely. Uh, very unlikely. Bedfellows. Yeah, duo. Uh, so he was right. He was uh, reporting for National Public Radio. And he said, SUNY, you should really apply to NPR. I hadn't thought of it. I applied to NPR. About a year later, I got the job. Then I had to learn radio the hard way, which was breaking my voice and learning how to pace myself. But John, You're Mann, still learning that. Yeah, I am. I am. It's it's, it's difficult. It's, it's 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 hard. I can't forget about trying to do traffic reports. <laughs> yeah, please. Yeah, we're going to talk about that in another broad bo- bo- podcast. But yeah, let's wrap things up. I just want to wrap up my uh, career at uh, the radio station in uh, in college. Okay. KCSN was the name of the radio station, but it was like I was like you referred to earlier. I was a big hockey fan. I was a big hockey person. My dad was from from Brooklyn and uh, he taught me all about hockey we would go to hockey games and I didn't, know, I didn't know that Brooklyn was a hotbed for hockey you ever heard of the New York Rangers pal Brooklyn that's is one of the that's in Manhattan Brooklyn is one of the five Manhattan. boroughs of New York City Manhattan. it's all New York Manhattan. City Broadway blue shirt did it teach you a thing or two yeah you and Raj Gilbert <laughs> or Jean Rattel and who's that how about Marcel Dion I don't even say it midget 
If you don't know who Marcel Dion is, faithful listeners, look it up. He was a great player. He wasn't a great player. He was great. He wasn't great. He's a traitor. Anyway, I'm at Cal State Northridge, and I'm, uh, I'm, I'm anchoring the news in the morning. I'm reporting for my magazine show in the afternoon. Um, I'm doing a weekend overnight uh, uh, punk new wave rock show. And I'm engineering a um, classical music show as well. I was at the radio station, the college radio station, pretty much 24-7. It was before Wayne Gretzky came to the L.A. Kings, right? And so nobody was a hockey fan in Los Angeles back then. It was the late 70s, early 80s. You know, they would. the capacity at the L.A. Forum was... Was seventeen thousand. Was twelve thousand. Seventeen thousand. No, the LA form. It was only twelve thousand. Seventeen thousand. Look it up. Anyway, there were only like seven, eight thousand people that would go to the hockey games, right? Big hockey fans. Well, the LA Kings were in a dispute with their uh, their flagship radio station, and they decided that they were going to pull the broadcasts. So they were looking for some other stations to fill the void while they were in negotiations, and they came to us our small little uh, college radio station, KCSN, and they said, hey, you want to broadcast the hockey games? So we took, so we were broadcasting the LA Kings for a year. Nobody there at the radio station knew anything about hockey, so they, they asked around. Said, anybody know anything about hockey? And I raised my hand, I said, yeah. So I got to cover the LA Kings as a teenager, going to the games, going into the clubhouse after the games, and interviewing the players. And one of the highlights of my life, when I was 19 years old, I got to interview a 19-year-old Wayne Gretzky. I'll tell you. He was playing for the Indianapolis Racers then, right? <laughs> the Edmonton Oilers, where he won six cups, pal. He started with the Racers. Anyway, that was a highlight of my career. The arena seats 17,505 for basketball, 16,005 for hockey. What arena is that? The L.A. Forum. All right, I'm glad you did a fact check on me. I can admit when I'm wrong. It's very rare, but I admit it. Anyway, that's going to wrap up uh, episode two of our uh, podcast. SUNY Khalid, Scott Latiri, signing off. Give us your best lockout. SUNY Khalid reporting in San Francisco, California. Scott Latiri, San Francisco. Adios. Hasta la mañana. Vaya con Dios. <laughs> Spark it up, baby. <laughs> I don't know if that's a good